Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone and welcome to the Phineas Club. This is episode 120 for December 2019. And we talk about Christmas and a bunch of other stuff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Phineas Club. On this show, we get people from different countries and different cultures, and we talk about the things that have been happening in said countries, and we try to get a different take on uh, each of those. My name is Patrick Beja, and today I'm very glad to be welcoming back to the show Matthias from Germany, who is not in his... You're in, in Berlin, usually, right? No, I'm usually in Constance, all the way in the south, and now I'm all the way up in the north, uh, near the Danish border, actually. So Ooh, we had so quite a travel for, uh, for Christmas. You're experiencing a completely different part of German culture, where Indeed I Wi-Fi am. is banned and electricity is bad. Right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> we were joking about this before the show. Maybe we'll talk about it, but not before we also say hello to Bart, who's joining us as well, not from Germany, but from Ireland. How's it going, sir? It is going absolutely fine. Thank you very much, Patrick. Absolutely fine sounds like it's not great. It's like it's fine. Right. It's going fine. It's fine, but I have a cold and I'm cranky. Uh, I can I can understand that. And you were saying you have to work as well, even though it's, it's the holidays. Uh, talking about holidays, Merry Christmas, I was saying before, but it's the 27th, so I was rebuked. Uh, I was told it's too late for Merry Christmases and well wishes. So I apologize. But still, you know what? Whatever. Merry Christmas. Um, well, hopefully the listeners had a, had a good day and they had a good, good fun with family. And, you know, we, we can always wish them a happy new year. Yeah, I guess that works as well. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. I noticed, talking about different cultures, um, I noticed that when I'm tweeting or talking about stuff in French, I have absolutely no problem saying Joyeux Noël. And I assume that everyone, uh, even those who are not celebrating Christmas, are fine with, you know, saying, hey, Merry Christmas, whatever, it's great. Uh, everyone's happy. And... It, Maybe it's because so, but when I'm talking English, I'm like, oh, Merry Christmas. But my influence from the social justice warriors of political correctness and identity politics uh, assault my mind. And I'm like, oh, but some people don't celebrate Christmas. So maybe I shouldn't be saying Merry Christmas. But I still have this French uh, uh, intent of going like, Merry Christmas. If you don't do it, then fine. You know, you don't need to, to, um, say it back or whatever or take it for yourself but i'm just saying merry christmas to everyone in general and i think one of the reasons for that is that christmas in france is very very slightly uh religious and 
even that, most people don't care about the religious aspect of it. So that's kind of a... I don't know. It's it's weird for me because I'm usually on the part of, oh, you have to be sensitive and you have to be careful about what you say to not offend different people. But for Christmas, I'm like, whatever. Merry Christmas. It's fine. Well, wishing someone happiness. Like, I mean, there's so much objectionable on planet Earth today. <laughs> like, really? Is that what we're going to get all hung up about? Oh, no. Someone wants me to be happy. How well, terrible. Those, How dare they? Those those crazy leftist Americans, I, th I assume it's leftist, um, are I saying think they're like, fictitious. I, I think it's the, the right wing want to ha want there to be a war on Christmas. So they invent all of these things that they can then go and get all angry about. I don't know. Yeah, you you know, do I've... it over here. So it's also the same over here. But, you know, you mean it's fictitious and they invent the, the war on I think the war yeah, on Christmas. Yeah, they want to have a war on Christmas. They're trying to invent it, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think the war on Christmas doesn't really exist. But definitely the people who say... You know, it's not like the, the biggest scandal, but it's like, Merry Christmas, if you celebrate that sort of thing, and if you don't, then Happy Tuesday. And it's fine. I think, you know, it's whatever. I don't really care. But it's just that I noticed for myself that when I say Joyeux Noël, I don't even think about the caveat, you know, whereas... Yeah. Mm. Cultural differences, it's, I guess. Yeah. It's more a thing of uh, if you don't wish it explicitly, they think you are doing it for some sinister reason, and that's the war on Christmas. Oh, like if you here. say, if you, if you don't explicitly say "Frohe Weihnachten" in German, mm. then it's all ah well, what happened to Christmas? And uh, it's uh, political correctness, and they're all uh, after our traditions. And the same is with uh, our Christmas markets; uh, they always try to fabricate something that uh, we need to abolish those, or they want to abolish those because they are not culturally appropriate, and uh, that's. Just a right-wing fantasy, I guess, something to hang up but on. They, wait, they don't like the Christmas markets? What's no, 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 they, they like want it, but... people to not like the markets so that they can have a big battle to unite the Christians against everyone else. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, seriously. It's more like there's every year for, for the last, I don't know how many years, there has been a fake story that somewhere somewhere in Germany that a Christmas market is no longer called Weihnachtsmarkt, Christmas market, but it's now called Winter Market or something. It's always a fake story that mm. comes up in the social media and they always use it to show, uh, well, they all want us to have no more Christmas and that we need to abolish that. Uh, they, they, they are after us, our culture. So right, uh, there was a great. I give a great podcast recommendation that covers this. Um, the wonderful podcast, The Illusionist, for their Christmas special, re-aired an older episode. Um, actually, it may have been sorry, it was ninety-nine percent invisible. Re-aired an older Illusionist. It's about Winterval, which is this giant big controversy <laughs> made up out of absolutely nothing in the UK. Basically, Bradford Council wanted a name to cover their entire winter stuff, so Christmas, New Year, the whole thing, and they called it Winterval, and it was no problem for a year. And then a year later, the bishops took offense, and they pretend that it was about renaming Christmas, but one of the biggest features of Winterval was the Christmas celebrations in Winterval. Oh, the whole thing really? was just completely made up, and that, that goes so back familiar. decades. That goes back decades. And even now in, in the UK Parliament, recently it came up again. Someone again threw in Winterval. Uh, it, it's just, it's all fiction. The, the, Christianity is the dominant religion in the West. It's, Christmas isn't under attack, except perhaps from consumerism. I guess that might be one. Well, in France, consumerism has completely taken over Christmas. And the Christian aspect, I mean, that's something that is, uh, you know, a very common theme in French uh, societal discussions. Uh, the religion is really 
pushed to the side, but if you say pushed to the side, I think it's a, it's seen as a negative thing. So I don't think the term is quite appropriate. It's rather each person's business. It's each person's affair. And Christians are very happy celebrating Christmas and doing, you know, the the Christmas mass and all of that. And for and of course, you know, Christian is obviously the dominant religion in French, uh, if you don't count uh, people who just are either agnostic or atheists. But it, it, it still is not a conflict. You know, it's really interesting to see how things work out in the US, especially. But let's talk about your uh, uh, country since you're actually there, uh, actually here, and you can respond. Those conflicts don't really exist in France for the most part. And it's really no problem. It's just people are hanging out and saying Merry Christmas. And some people people also say Joyeuse Fête, which is Happy Holidays. And it's, it, it really isn't a problem. Um, and I wonder, I mean, the obvious answer that comes to my mind for why this isn't a problem is we aren't obsessed with religion. And of course, you have a few examples here and there where people say, oh, but we need to do more of this or, or less of that. But it's really in the background and it never takes center stage. And so that issue of wishing people Merry Christmas, since people don't really think that there's a war on Christmas or anything silly like that. Um, it's just you say Merry Christmas and you say Happy Holidays and no one cares. Like, Again, it might be because Christmas is kind of devoid of its uh, religious meaning to begin with. It's really more about the tree and the presents, uh, which, to be honest, it, I feel like for most people, that's what it is in other countries as well. And the Christians just do their thing with the, uh, uh, you know, the n nativity scene and stuff like that in the mass. But a few Christmas carols wishing peace on earth and, you know, goodwill to all men. I, I find it like, I mean, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I find it exceptionally hard to be offended by wishing people well and hoping the world is a happier place. I just I just cannot get in any way offended by that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the, the people in the US who have a point uh, from the, the right feel oppressed, not oppressed. Again, yes, they feel oppressed. I don't think they're oppressed, but they feel pressured because there's this idea that you shouldn't say Merry Christmas, right? Because it's insensitive to the people who don't celebrate it and you're like ignoring their uh, uh, religion or their traditions or their culture. And it's like, oh, wait a second, you don't celebrate Christmas, so I should say Happy Hanukkah. Uh, oh, and you don't, and you have like this Kwanzaa thing, which I don't even, I had never heard about before, it seems to me, and I'm sure it's wrong, but it seems to me that it's kind of the made into the equivalent of Christmas for people who celebrate Christmas so that they can say something to the people who don't. So, oh, what's your Christmas? It's Kwanzaa. Okay, so I will say happy Merry Kwanzaa or whatever. And it's like, I understand also this feeling of, dude, like, I can't even say Merry Christmas because it might offend someone somewhere. But how many people does it actually it. offend? Like, how many people actually get offended that the right are supposedly reacting to? But that's the thing. It's the people on the left who say, who, who get into that mode of, well, I'm not going to say Merry Christmas in case it would offend people, right? It's, it's not the people who are manufacturing that idea of the war on Christmas who are saying that specific thing. Other things, yes, but the specific thing of, well, we shouldn't say Merry Christmas, it's the people on the left, the people who are being like 
overly culturally sensitive for, for my sensitivities, it feels like. So for me, it's just more in uh, a state of mind that uh, not everyone is doing the same thing. It's just for me, I don't have a problem if you say Merry Christmas. I don't have a problem if you say Merry, uh, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever. It's just uh, not everyone is doing the same thing. That's all. But what about yeah. the people who get offended when someone says Merry Christmas? Again, I, I, well, not offended, but the people who avoid saying Merry Christmas because they're like, ooh, I shouldn't say it, even though everyone around me is, you know. Christian and celebrating do Christmas. It, you know, do what feels right to you. Like If you don't mm. want to say it, don't say it. But the only people I have issue with are people who get angry when someone wishes them a Merry Christmas. It's like, oh, for God's sake, really? There's yeah. so much going on. Is this what we need to go fight about? <laughs> that I will it's, agree on, yeah. It's also funny that those people who get offended, usually get offended, um, are the ones that usually don't care about their religion at all. It's stereotypical. People go to a church one time a year, and that's on Christmas, and then uh, the rest of the year they don't care. And uh, those people are usually those who are offended uh, that we want to get rid of Christmas and the religion and our culture. It's just it's know. just ca kind of comical over here. It seems like that, at least to me. I think, you know, you're looking at this from the uh, angle of your, you know, leftist view <laughs> in Germany. I, think I wouldn't people... say leftist. I would more say um, uh, non-religious view, non I guess. Yeah, maybe. But I think the people who get offended when people say Merry Christmas are people who are uh, uh, on on the left in the U.S., you know? It's like, oh, you sh it's not like offended, oh, I slammed the door and, and, and flipped the table. It's more like, oh, you know, you shouldn't say that. And I don't know that they actually say you shouldn't say that, but there's like a little chill that goes in the room. And, and maybe that's my fantasy about those things. But, but yeah, I, I think that's exaggerated, Patrick. I think yeah. I'm sure there are people who, who, who are like that and I, they must exist. They are they are not right. zero. But I think they're an awful there are an awful lot less of them than we all imagine. They're just for some reason, what they say seems to get amplified to the point where it suddenly becomes, well, everyone says you shouldn't say happy Christmas. I say, mm. don't think so. Yeah, now think back really to the social media sickness we talked about last time I was on. <laughs> it's all an exaggeration or exaggerated by uh, a small minority, probably. And yeah, we're yeah. just perceiving it like it's the majority. All right. I well, so. I guess uh, we can... Uh, yeah, go ahead, Bart. Let, let's round this conversation out. So just since we've already had uh, Joyeux Noël and we've already had... Um, I, I've forgotten the German one now. What was it again, Matthias? Frohe Weihnachten. I'll just throw in a Nolag Shonadiev, which is the Irish, and Zalich Gerstfest, which is the Flemish Last Dutch. Excellent. Yeah, since we talked about Christmas carols, I was promised a Christmas carol. Oh, <laughs> well, that, I think the promise was, as uh, politicians' promises, broken on in, within the first few minutes of uh, the actual show. I was hoping for Patrick to sing us a Christmas carol. Well, you can. I. The thing is, we don't in France, so I don't really... We don't have the tradition of Christmas carols, so I, I couldn't. It would be a sad parody of an American Christmas carol, which, uh, which I really don't. There must be a do. French translation of, of Silent Night. I mean, every, that's yeah, translated there, into hundreds are, of languages. But, but we don't have the tradition of going around from house to house or even singing them at Christmas. They exist, and some people do sing them, but it's it's kind of not very common. Whereas mm -hmm. I'm sure in Germany, Matthias. Uh, you do sing Christmas carols, and you yes, and German are... is such a melodical speech and <laughs> language that everyone wants to hear it sing in sing in song. It's but yeah, I guess that's possible that we might not. Um, 
All right. Well, you know what? Uh, we've talked about Christmas enough, and I think I have the title of my episode. Uh, I think it's going to be Merry Christmas, whether you like it or not. Oh, yes. Yes, I approve. That's, that we can all agree that you shouldn't be offended if people say Merry Christmas, and hopefully no one really does. It's just a manufactured uh, complaint. So Merry Christmas to everyone. There you go. Here, here. Um, and uh, what else are, are we going to talk about? I guess keeping the happiness going uh let's talk about uh, uh, ireland and brexit a little bit with bart uh you, you mentioned you could put things in context for us a little bit with the brexit and what's happening in the uh well the, the issue of the border um so but more the, the border is central to it all right yeah so i i grew so i'm originally belgian but i grew up in ireland from age four until well now and I lived about 10 miles from the border with Northern Ireland. Our, our nearest big town was actually Enniskillen, which is in Northern Ireland. So we lived on that border. I heard a bomb go off from my school playground and when they blew up one of the bridges that was oh. later rebuilt as part of the peace process. It, it, you know, so it's very real to me. And I remember those army men with machine guns lying in their full camouflage next to the road, I remember the Chinook helicopters like you see in videos of war zones swooping in overhead, dropping off 10 soldiers into a field and then flying away again. The, the border crossings were full militarized checkpoints with bollards that shot up out of the ground automatically if they wanted to block a car. There were machine guns pointed at you. You know, you could. I knew the whole NATO phonetic alphabet from having all the number plates read out, you know. I mean, it was full on military. Every day there were people being murdered there was collusion between the police forces and the unionist terrorists. There was obviously the IRA and then all of the off splinter groups. I mean, it was horrific. And the only reason that there is anything even vaguely representing peace in Northern Ireland, and it's kind of easy to forget that. I mean, right now, Northern Ireland is political chaos, but it's political chaos. Mm. It's not murder on the street every day. I mean, it's, you can easily see the glass as being three quarters empty up north, but you have to remember how bad it was in the 80s and 90s before you, you take such a pessimistic view. And it all comes down to that border. That border is central because Ireland was artificially divided. It's not a border that's existed for centuries. It's like I think someone said there's like 15 crossing points between Norway and Sweden or something. There are hundreds and hundreds of crossing points between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland because it's a completely arbitrary line that was drawn less than a century ago. So it's, you know, it's just not, there's no natural border. It's completely artificial. And since the Good Friday Agreement that brought the end of that, of that uh, horrible conflict, Can you remember, the border you hasn't existed. The, the, the year of the uh, Late 90s. So we're talking sort of the turn of the century, really. Is, um, so as, as the 90s, so the whole thing sort of kicked off in the 90s. And I mean, it's... It's been a very gradual process, so I, it's not really a single year, but you can basically say as the 90s turned into the 2000s, things in the north really settled down. Mm. So it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago, no. Um, and the biggest thing is that border is gone. I mean, totally gone. The military installations were dynamited, demolished, flattened. They do not exist. You would not know. The only way you know you've driven across that border is a subtle difference in road markings because the UK use slightly different white lines than the Irish use. The UK have slightly different yield signs and slightly different roadside reflectors. And oftentimes, 
you know, any roadworks will stop at the border. So you might be on a really bad road in the Republic and then you go, Ka-dunk! oh, we must have crossed the border. We're on a good road now or mm. vice versa, you know, because as, as budgets have changed, that's sort of shifted around a bit. The border is invisible. People can live in the north and work in the south and live in the south and work in the north. Families are completely spread across that border. So the reason there's peace is because it doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is because we're in a customs union with the north. That's how it's possible for the Good Friday Agreement to exist. There was also created hundreds of cross-border government institutions where the government of Ireland, the government of the UK and the government of Northern Ireland work together on things that affect the whole island of Ireland. Because... Being such an artificial border, lots of things affect the whole Ireland of Ireland. And they're not exciting. Right? There's no Minister for Foreign Affairs for the United Ireland of Ireland. It's all the boring stuff like tourism, which only helps drive our economy. Agriculture, which is the other, you know, the biggest pillar of our economy. All the boring, mundane stuff that makes a country function. That's where those cross-border institutions come into play. And they're just quietly making all of our economies work better. It's only possible because of the customs union between the European Union, well, the European Union basically, it's only possible because Northern Ireland being part of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland being part of the EU, we're all in the EU together. So there is there is no regulatory difference between the North and the Republic. There is no customs between the North and the Republic. There is no import duties, export duties. We are in the common market together and that's why it's possible. And that's why... The single biggest problem and the one thing that everything that's gone wrong with Theresa May has been about that border, because that is absolutely central. And there's only two solutions. Well, there's three solutions. The whole UK stays in the customs union. Northern Ireland gets a different deal from the rest of the UK and you put a border down the middle of the Irish Sea. Which no one in the UK wants. I mean, which no one in the UK wants. And actually, there is no third option. Sorry, it's either the whole of the UK stays in or Northern Ireland gets split off from the UK and stays in with Ireland. Or actually, well, the other possibility is or there is a hard border because that border would become the edge of the EU. You can't have goods and services. You can't have goods passing over that border if they are under completely different regulation. If their standard for what is safe meat is different to our standard for safe meat, there has to be a border there. The EU can't have stuff that doesn't meet its standards coming into the single market, because once you're in Ireland, you're in the EU. So that's what we were discussing, uh, I think, with Bruce uh, from Scotland a couple of episodes ago. And we were saying there's essentially no solution because solution A, uh, the English don't want, and solution B, the EU and no one <laughs> wants. Wants, yeah. Um, and so we're, we're... Is that... It's a key issue in the uh, Brexit discussions. Is it like if someone could manage to fix this, could then the uh, Brexit deal okay. package go through or it, are there May other issues? Fixed. Theresa May has fixed it. She's negotiated an arrangement whereby, at least for the transition period, there will be an al- regulatory alignment is the fudge word Theresa May came up with. So basically, we won't be in the single market, but we'll keep our regulations aligned and we'll keep the free trade so that you can continue to behave as if we're in the EU. And the problem is the backstop. So there's two parts. Yes, there's two parts to leaving Brexit or sorry to Brexit. There's the withdrawal treaty and then the future trading relationship. And they're two separate things. So the withdrawal treaty is simply the divorce agreement. And. What comes then is a new trade deal between the EU and the now independent UK. 
So what's everything right now is only about the divorce agreement. It's only about the actual treaty to leave the EU. And that treaty has a clause in it that says that if the negotiations for a future trade deal fall apart, we guarantee that Northern Ireland will stay regulatory aligned with the EU indefinitely until a trade deal is hammered out. And so then it words, creates kind of a customs border between Northern Ireland and the UK, the rest of the UK. Or the rest of the UK have to just tag along with the North. Basically, the North is right. the tail that wags the dog. And assuming that they can do a deal, the backstop should never be permanent. No one wants the backstop to be permanent. But the backstop is basically saying that if all else fails, if you turn out to be as bad at negotiating as you appear to be, then we promise that we're not going to mess up Northern Ireland. We're not going to mess up that border. But... Ultimately, the but whole so point of the backstop is just that's a holding position while we have the real negotiation for the actual long-term solution. But I can see how people will, again, there is no other solution, but I can see how people might think, well, this is a way of getting us to essentially have to abide by the rules. Um, this is the worst solution, or not the worst solution, but you essentially have to abide by EU rules for as long as you keep that... Regular, how did she fudge the regulatory alignment? But basically, right. until you can negotiate a proper deal, this is this is the this is the fallback position. Right, and the fallback position means you have to abide by EU rules, but you don't have a say in what they are, which is what right. everyone was saying. That's what's going to happen because you already had a great deal, and you're saying no, I want a better one, and no one's going to give you a better one. But that that uh, uh, alignment might become permanent if you don't find another deal, which is likely, you know, it's not like you can magically solve that customs issue. It might be a long-term solution. It's conceivably a long-term solution, which means hard Brexit people are still not happy because they would they want you to say, well, F all of that. We just do a hard Brexit, which although I'm, I'm thinking out loud now, it doesn't solve the Irish border issue, even if it, it does is not. Yeah. What it does is throw Northern Ireland into chaos. Mm. Um, a part, another part of the Good Friday Agreement is the right to hold a referendum for Northern Ireland to rejoin the Republic of Ireland. Hmm. That is uh, that is enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement, and they, I think you can have it every seven years if you want. If there was a hard Brexit and that border came back, there would be a lot of appetite in Northern Ireland among a lot of people to leave the UK. The problem is there would be an inverse and extremely strong resistance to that from the unionist community. And demographically, we're getting very close to the point where the unionists become a minority because for various cultural reasons, Catholics have a lot of babies and the unionists don't. And it's mm. inevitable that within the next decade or two, the politics of Northern Ireland are going to reverse, which is... I was one of the driving factors behind the Good Fight Agreement. Everyone wanted to negotiate an agreement before that day happened and the unionists found themselves in a minority. And I think the most likely outcome is that Northern Ireland would either fall into such chaos that no one could govern it or that it could end up leaving the UK. So basically, hard Brexit is probably going to splinter the UK because I'm not entirely sure the Scots are all that happy to stay out of yeah, Europe either. So Everyone is saying if we have a, a new border between the Ireland and the rest of the UK, like the sea border, then everyone, the union would dissolve because that would split up everything. And mm -hmm. then the Scots would say, well, if Ireland can leave, we can leave as well. And if we don't have that border there, but keep a real border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, the union also breaks up. So 
everything breaks up. Yeah, I mean, really, the Norway model is kind of all that's on the table. You can dress it up a bit in frilly skirts and, you know, call it regulatory alignment. But Theresa May's deal is basically, we'll agree to your rules. They actually managed to negotiate a lot of concessions on free movement of people, which I didn't think the British were going to get. And Theresa May actually, I think, got a really good deal from Europe. Um, and it keeps the UK able to trade in the single market, which keeps the Northern Irish situation okay. So the deal she got is actually surprisingly good. And practical and workable. The thing is, it's a compromise. And the hard Brexiteers don't know what that word means. Yeah, yeah. So, even with a good deal, no one seems to want to agree to it, in, at least in Parliament. Well, I mean, I'm playing dev devil's advocate here. Mm. Devil being, you know, the Brexiters, uh, which always get angry at me because I, I try to, you know, in the show, we don't have too many Brexiters. I think that is where we probably failed a little bit, uh, not getting them on the show directly. But I can see how that deal, again, is letting you, I mean, forcing you to abide by, by uh, EU rules without having a say. So it's, again, a worse deal than you had before the Brexit. Yes. Which, for people like us, who I think understand the realities of the situation, is the only thing that could work because we think that staying in the EU would be the ideal. But if you yes. think that a hard Brexit is the only solution or is the solution that you want, this looks terrible. Um, again, the hard we, Brexit doesn't take care of the issue of um, of, they, of Ireland, the Irish border, but still. They want a unicorn. They, they genuinely want a unicorn. They want uh, Northern Ireland to just not exist. This... Hmm. Terrible fly in the ointment needs to be ignored in, out of existence. And it can't be ignored out of existence because if you but ignore it too it hard, can. it will explode. But let's say it can, okay, for just a second. Let's pretend we live in unicorn land. Okay. Aside from the uh, annoying Irish border issue, could a, in your opinion, could a hard Brexit be possible? And I mean, it seems like it's technically huh? doable. It would be difficult, but doable, right? I mean, we already had the Europeans pass le emergency legislation, or sorry, the, not pass, um, the European Commission drafted emergency legislation to deal with the absolutely spectacularly cannot avoid doing low-hanging fruit, like making sure the airplanes can continue to fly in the case of a no-deal Brexit. Mm -hmm. That is assumed that it will pass the European Parliament and become actual law. There's also stuff in there like, you know, you can continue to actually drive your lorries in and out of France for, I think, for a couple, uh, was it a year or so? It's basically an absolute, absolute worst case scenario was laid out in those legislations, which are probably going to pass. But that's only kicking the can a little bit further down the road. It would be economically extremely hard on the UK to suddenly find itself with this massive barrier between it and its biggest trading partner. Well, that's that's what you're saying because you, you don't want the Brexit, but the people who do say well, we'll no, just no, re no, renegotiate no. And, and it will be fine. No, okay, but no, no, the, the, the fact is that Britain's biggest trading partner is the EU. That's not an opinion. That is the reality. If you crash out without a deal, then you are causing chaos with your biggest trading partner. How bad that chaos has been, we can argue about forever, mm. but it will exist. Well, you just renegotiate a trade deal, which but that takes you already, years. And you already, how, how long did Canada Europe take? Seven years to negotiate. It's not just the trade deal. 
it's also uh, what happens to the citizens. I mean, we have a lot of British citizens living in Europe. We have a lot of European citizens living in Britain. Yes, it will be hard for five or ten years, but then the UK <laughs> will be back to the glory of its empire days. And it will rise like the phoenix. And as the European Union collapses into uh, chaos and nothingness, the the right choice that the British people made in, in the mid-teens of 2000 will prove to have been the right one. I'm might say... I, I, you're being flippant, Patrick, but I think it'll go further back in time, around about the Middle Ages when it was the Kingdom of England and England <laughs> only, and it didn't yet have a union with Scotland, Wales or Ireland. Mm. So no rural Britannia? New, I think, disintegrate Britannia, I think. Okay, well, all right. That's... Uh, uh, um, Again, something that uh, we have been speculating about for a, a long while. I want to turn back to the EU for a second and maybe put a little bit of fuel in the Brexiters' cars because, okay. because we're seeing what's happening in, a, in countries where the, 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 the politicians have to contend with internal pressure and external pressure and have to comply with EU regulations, countries like Germany, where apparently, again, the government is imploding. And Bart, you, you were mentioning uh, Belgium as well, where yeah. the government has uh, imploded too. But let's go to Matthias first. Um, Germany is not getting better. And uh, Merkel's gambit is not working out. She's in deep trouble and the government is toast, right? Well, it, the implosion has slowed down, I guess it is. Yeah, uh, the implosion has slowed down. <laughs> <laughs> We're still collapsing, just slowly. No, I mean, she uh, Angela Merkel is a lame duck. That's all she is right now. And mm. uh, I mean, she has uh, declared that she won't run for a uh, seek another term in office and she will uh, give up all her political uh, offices after the um, current legislation so uh, she's just waiting for the end i guess and uh, everyone is uh, wondering who might be next matthias how long is it like how many years is it until the next scheduled elections so uh, the uh, usual term is four years, and we voted last year. So uh, it's oh. uh, three more years, or two and a half more years. And do Germans think that's realistic, that she could be chancellor but not chair of her party for three years? That's an interesting question, because uh, up until now, it's always been uh, uh, the unison between the leader of the party and being the chancellor. And uh, she split that up, basically, because uh, the uh, conservative party, the CDU, voted on a new head of uh, party just recently and uh, decided who would be her successor. And now the question is, uh, will the uh, person who was vo uh, elected as the leader be the next candidate for chancellor or will there be someone different that's something they haven't decided yet but uh, that's something that's up for grabs i guess and can i ask if what may seem like a very silly question but how is the chancellor how does the, is the chancellor like a prime minister where the people elect the parliament and the parliament choose a prime minister or is the chancellor yes. like a president okay no, no, so no, it's no, not no. we have a parliamentary democracy just uh, like britain so okay cool 
at the uh, Bundestag, our parliament elects the Bundeskanzler, the chancellor, and uh, they are free to choose whomever they want. It doesn't have to be a member of parliament. It can be someone from the outside. But usually, since it's a politician, they usually yes. have uh, a, a man, um, mandat, yeah, the, 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 the seat in parliament as well. Mm. And uh, usually it's the party leader, because if your party wins, then your party leader as, as says, I have the right to become chancellor. So exactly, yeah, because that's exactly what I'm used to in Ireland and in the UK. Yeah. So I guess I, I I want to twist the knife a little bit again to play devil's advocate or devil's executioner, I suppose, in this case. Um, this is the situation that everyone feared and that I think people who are wary of the EU say is unavoidable. Um, and to to speak to your um, views specifically, Matthias, I think because all of this is caused by issues like um, immigrants, right, and and the rise of uh, far right parties all over Europe and including in Germany. And I don't want to paint a picture that is overly yeah. dark, but it seems like again Merkel and her pro-EU, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate, I don't actually think that's the case, but her pro-EU views uh, and her um, uh, uh, inclusionist uh, policies are, if not failing, at the very least, not being received well by the German population. So EU isn't all that great, is it? Yeah, well, it's a little more complex than that, of course. Um, one of the reasons you always have to think of in the current climate is that Angela Merkel has been chancellor for almost 16 years now. If uh, At the end of, the, of her term, she will be uh, in office for 16 years. And we have had that before. Uh, we have had, for example, Helmut Kohl. M many people know the name. In the uh, 80s and early 90s, he was chancellor for 16 years. And at the end of his term, they were throwing eggs at him at public events. Mm. So it's it's like uh, this. The, they're all tired of always the same person. And that's one of the reasons why everyone wants her out of office, for one. Um you're right that uh, a lot of people are not content with her policies and not content with uh, what they see as too much globalization or too much EU and want a more nationalistic view. But just to blame it on that is a little bit too simple. There are also a lot of uh, it, it's a little bit like your Gilets Jean uh, in France. Uh, it's also the, the, the economic reasons that divide between uh, poor and rich people and the social problems that come along with that. That's one of the main reasons, I guess, for the unrest. Mm. So if we get back to that, what I've been talking about for a while in my you know immense clarity of vision that I saw and no one else did. Uh, <clears throat> well, not really, but uh, the, the issue of the middle class being... Actually, I've been challenged by the, uh, uh, on this by uh, a couple of listeners who have been telling me, you know, the middle class isn't really uh, regressing in developed countries, in the EU and in the US. Um, it's, again, perception. 
Which brings me back to the issue that I was talking about. I think it was in my editorial about the Gilets Jaunes that I published for uh, patrons specifically. So if you want to uh, listen to it, you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Phidias Club if you wish to. The link is in the show notes. Uh, but what I was saying is um, it was uh, uh, Newt Gingrich who was on uh, an interview a while ago before the election of Trump uh, who was saying who was arguing about facts and, and perception uh, and he was saying you know some people think or feel like the the situation is X and the journalist was answering as I think many of us are were thinking and were replying to people who felt differently the journalist was saying but this is not reality. The reality is why, you know, the letter Y. <laughs> and and uh, Gingrich was saying, sure, but they feel it's X. And the journalist sort of dismissed it. It was like, well, yeah, whatever. You know, if, if they can't understand what reality is, it doesn't matter. But what we've learned over the past few years is that perception and feelings really do matter because they drive decisions. And if you feel a certain way, it's the oldest, you know, uh, techni political technique in the book, but it takes a different form nowadays. Um, if you feel a certain way, you're going to vote and act on your feelings rather than reality. Because I, I was, again, well, never mind. It's a different story. I was going to talk about uh, Harari again. But it... it those feelings that you're mentioning, uh, Matthias, is are are important in the movements, political movements that the EU is taking um, right now. And I don't know how we can address them, but uh, the result is the issue with Merkel. If you add on top of it, the it's, the other th it's also things. kind of a seasonal thing, I guess, a little bit, because um, after the uh, Conservative Party voted on their leadership, um, the topic has died down a little bit. It's, it's still lingering oh, okay. there, but uh, other things have taken over and no one is talking about that anymore. But wait until after Christmas and after the new year, maybe it'll come up again. And mm. um, especially we have... Uh, I think it's two or three state elections next year. So uh, then, uh, at the very least, then it'll come up again. And uh, what are two, state elections? Uh, the elections in the states, like the government of the sta different states in Germany. Oh, the, the different states. Okay, okay. Sorry, you mean in the federal sense, uh, states? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So um, and two of those elections are in the east of Germany, where the Pegida movement and what we call Wutbürger, I guess that's the more or less equivalent to Jorge Legions, is uh, where they are present most, the most and uh, mm -hmm. have their protests. So it's, it'll be a hot election and undoubtedly this will all come up again. And uh, on the other hand, something I didn't mention before um, the conservatives have a problem of their own because they don't feel, uh, let me put it like this way, they don't feel conservative enough anymore. Or uh, Angela Merkel was not conservative enough for them. She was kind of moderate in the middle and she didn't take that conservative views and stances. And now they're looking for kind of their messiahs. Who will save us? Who will bring back our conservative views? And uh, that's the hot topic that the party in itself has right now. Mm. That's a very similar situation to what we have in France. And you mentioned uh, the Gilets Jaunes. I guess that's a 
good uh, transition into my the news from my part of the world. Um, we have the same perception issue, and even though the middle class might not be as damaged as uh, we thought it was, or I thought it was, the perception is definitely that globalization is enriching some people a lot more than others. And I don't think that's quite perception. It's just that the middle class is still there, but it's looking and seeing the uh, very rich people um, being, or again, they feel like they're getting richer. Um, and so in France, the Gilets Jaunes, I think as I discussed in that editorial, kind of um, the movement slowed down uh, over the past couple of weeks after uh, Macron announced a number of measures, which have been revealed to be half measures, I guess is, is fair to say. Um, but people still, you know, with Christmas and the, the holidays, um, people have not, the, the, the participation in the uh, demonstrations were, was uh, cut in half. And the last one was basically not so much. It's every weekend. And we're guessing that for another couple of weekends, at least, it's going to be... Um, relatively quiet um but one of the things you know i i i think we all understand that it's very difficult to pin down uh demands from the gilets jaunes movement and in france at least we have the the conservatives who went more conservative as they did in germany macron in the middle have sort of taken place of the center right for france which I think for every other country was probably center center. <laughs> um, the left is unexist, in, uh, you know, has been obliterated at the last election. The uh, far left is um, uh, Mélenchon, who many French people <laughs> will uh, uh, react at hearing the name of, either positively or negatively. So he's kind of a, a special character in, in, in itself, uh, very charismatic, but kind of extreme in his uh, attitude. Uh, French people don't like calling him, when I call him extreme, um, I think he's definitely... Um, I'm looking for the right word, colorful. He's a very colorful character. Maybe that's the right way of putting it. Uh, and on the far right, we have uh, Le Pen and the um, traditional far right elements. But none of these are getting the support of the Gilets Jaunes. Like none of these are getting the, the support of the movement in general. So the Gilets Jaunes are a, a kind of a patchwork of many different people with many different demands, many different uh, needs and issues. And we still don't have uh, any one party that can unite a, a majority of people. It's com incomplete. I don't want to say disarray, but it's definitely like if we had elections tomorrow, we still wouldn't know who would win um, because no one is credible enough to... Uh, carry uh, an election, including Macron. So it's kind of a weird thing to analyze. Uh, one thing that, that the Gilets jaunes seem to be rallying about in, in asking for is uh, the referendum, referendum d'initiative citoyenne, which is essentially a way to uh, vote on things in general like it's a referendum that people could invoke uh the 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 specificities of it aren't uh, set in stone but it would be a way to give voice to the people in um in in the country by asking them for their opinion on different issues that the government is faced with and 
that is not of course we have a way of doing referendums but the the, the that version would be some uh, uh, some version of if you get enough signatures on one of those referendums from the population then it has to be voted on by the entire population and then it becomes a referendum so that would be a way for the population to raise uh, issues and to have the 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 their voice heard um it's kind of ironic to say what I'm going to say now after having done an episode on Switzerland only a couple of months ago where these uh, referendums are extremely common. Um, but I personally don't think it would be a good idea. And the, the country is essentially not divided between, yeah, it would be great and no, it would be horrible. But people are not sure about it. They're, everyone is kind of wondering, would it be good? You know, what are the drawbacks? And I think approaching it overall with a relative um, uh, uh, adult or uh, mature behavior. And of course, the issues are, the, the two main issues that are being put forth in front of the advantage that it would give the voice to the people and make them feel like they're heard, which of course is the main issue is the, in the Gilets jaunes movement, which is we don't feel like you're caring about us, you don't care about us, or you don't pay attention to us. Uh, uh, the issues would be, first, it's very difficult to answer a complex question with yes or no. Um, and that we've seen <laughs> many, many times in history. I'm looking uh, sideways at Bart right now. Um, and the other thing is, it usually turns into a referendum on the government. So people don't really care about the issue being put in front of them. Um, they like or dislike the government, and that's what it turns into. And in both of those uh, uh, issues, I think it can have catastrophic effects on uh, the policies on the country because those questions are usually very complex, very difficult, and that's what you pay politicians to do. Uh, sure, they're, they're crap and they're horrible and they're uh, uh, terrible people who want to steal your votes and your money, but also the other side of it is that they're paid to, be, uh, to know their stuff. And... Um, those issues, you people don't get informed enough about these complex topics to have an informed opinion. Um, and there are positive things as well, but Bart, you, you wanted to mention yeah, something. Yeah, I was going to say, so how a country does in terms of, of referenda, I think depends on how accustomed the country is to doing them and how how much infrastructure is in place. Because Ireland has a strong culture of referenda they're not like switzerland where there's referenda all the time but in ireland as we have a referendum every few years and we actually have a lot of infrastructure to combat a lot of the problems you're describing so every time there's a referendum there is an independent referendum commission established which is chaired by a justice so a, a senior judge and they issue to every household in ireland a pamphlet with the facts and because it's run by a judge, it's very, very careful that it is the facts. This is the actual implications of voting yes, the actual implications of voting no. And the referendum commission are then responsible for making sure there's a level of fairness. And they will be interviewed on television and stuff, on talk shows, on the radio, or, you know, all those kind of things. And as well as those guys, you will then have a yes campaign and a no campaign. But there's this actual formalized literally judicious body who are 
arbitrating over the facts. So you don't have this, it would be different to like in the UK with Brexit, where you had this red bus with lies printed on the side. That wouldn't float here because you'd have the independent referendum commission going, no, actually, these are the facts. And it's always chaired by a very senior judge so that they have credible independence. Hmm. That is a really interesting way of doing things. It feels to me like this couldn't really be done that way in France, but maybe I'm being I'm selling my country well, short. Practice, right? Practice. Ireland didn't get to where it is on day one. Ireland mm. has a strong, you know, Ireland is good at referenda because we're practiced. We mm. do it often. And when we get things wrong, we reevaluate and we tweak things. And now we're at a stage where I feel that Ireland is very good at doing referenda and it tends not to become a popularity contest. There's a few notable exceptions. EU referenda tends to turn into popularity contests because what happens is all the parties in Parliament are on the yes side and there is nobody on the no side. And the Irish voters don't feel confident when everyone's telling them the same thing. It makes it makes them suspicious. Mm. And that's why they voted no to Nice and no to Lisbon. And then when they realized that it was actually serious, they then went, oh, actually, no, on second thoughts, let's vote yes. <laughs> I Yeah, it feels it feels to me like some countries that are smaller. How many people live in Ireland? Uh, population is about six million. OK, that seems more manageable than 60. You know, it's like in Switzerland, you vote sure. on local stuff, you, you, and they are very educated. I don't know, maybe, maybe we have to start at some point to get ed educated about it, but 60 million with the, the way things are divided, maybe if it's done that way, I could get behind it. You're, you're right. You're, now, remember, you're we don't do a, them a solution. every month, right? We're doing them every two, three years. Mm. So that's often, but not perpetually. So the Irish model isn't like the Swiss model. Right, right. No, I'm just mentioning the Swiss model because it's so uh, uh, it's so much smaller of a country, mm. and it has people are involved in the uh, political life of their country all the time. Like I was mentioning, you know, the men have to have a gun in their home, and and they we did a special on Switzerland a few months back. You can go check that out as well. But um, that's a whole different conversation. But it seems to me that. People would make, I don't know, I guess I just, I don't trust the people. Maybe that's my issue. You know, I, I don't well, trust them, you know. <laughs> but no, but like you know, the thing is, it, it's, it's so difficult to be informed, to be well informed on complex issues. Um, and it is, know. but you can, as a country, you can, you can put infrastructure in place to make that better. Like Ireland's Referendum Commission, mm. we have very, very strict rules on how close to election day you're allowed to campaign. There's, a, there's, a, there's an actual ban on talking about a referendum the 24 hours before it. So you have this cooling yeah. off period before the vote. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's never perfect, right? I mean, what is it Churchill said? Democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others. Exactly, yeah. But you can do a lot. To, to to use referenda well. And there's some questions that are good for referenda and some questions yeah. that are terrible for referenda. If the answer isn't yes or no, it's really hard to run a good referendum on it. Well, the, the problem with that uh, version of the, the, the one that people want here is it would force the, 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 refer the referendum when enough signatures have been gathered in the country. Like, mm -hmm. let's say you get 500,000 signatures and the whole country has to vote on it. And I guess 
I don't that's know. You're, you're, making here, right? me, you're making me consider this in a different light, which is great because that's what the show is about. Um, maybe there would be a way of doing it that would work with, with the assurance that the rules are very strict and you have an independent judicial body in charge of it. Maybe we should look to, to uh, Ireland for that. that it, safeguards are really important mm. because otherwise it just becomes a populist nightmare. But yeah. I don't think it has to be a, a disaster. I don't think you. I don't think every referendum has to be Brexit. Yeah, yeah. I guess you know that's the latest examples, um, and that's what scares me. Uh, one, I mean, actually, one related the, thing. The thing is, just, sorry, I just want to say, if mm. the Brexit um, vote had happened with everyone actually informed about the consequences of voting yes or voting no and the current state of the union and the current relationship between the US, uh, I'm sorry, the UK and, <laughs> and the EU, I think I would have been much more okay with the result. It's really the, the, the worry I think that everyone feels is you can manipulate that in a way that is much stronger than you can manipulate general elections that we usually have. And of course, we need to have general elections, period. But those referendums are so easily manipulated and so much of an opportunity for um, uh, misleading that it's it should be handled with incredible care. And that's you seem to have found yes. a way to do that. Yeah. Just right. So my understanding of the French situation is that what people want is reform. They, they want constitutional changes to the country. And that's very hard to do in a single referendum. But Ireland, the reason we've had a few referendums recently in Ireland is because we had something called, um, I think it was the Citizens Commission. We basically, a few years ago, it was felt there was a need for our constitution to be tweaked a bit to bring it in line with modern times. And so the government randomly picked a few hundred voters and literally put them up in a retreat for days, weeks. And they tried to hammer out what it is we need to change. And that commission of the citizens proposed a number of yes/no referenda on mm. specific reforms, and over and it's I mean this is taking years, right? But every year or two, we're having one of those referenda. So the gay marriage referenda was part of the outcome of that citizens uh, council. The divorce referendum was part of that. The abortion referendum was part of that. But they've come out over the last about five years or so. And so that's how we sort of did a reform. Instead of having one referendum where you try to vote on an impossible question, we got the citizens together to come up with a bunch of proposals. The last one of them we voted on was to remove blasphemy from our constitution, because that was still a crime here. Um, now it isn't, yay. Um, and so that's an approach you could take if you want to have mm. actual reforms. That's actually something that, uh, I mean, the, the, the Gilets Jaunes, I, I liken them to uh, gamers in a, a game as a service. They're very good at pointing out issues, but not so good at finding solutions, I feel. Um, and that's how gamers, you know, usually are. They're like, oh, this sucks, this sucks. It would be so easy to fix. Just do this. And of course, when you understand the system, it doesn't really work. Um, and I think the Gilets Jaunes have some of that. I don't know that they want... It's difficult to know what they want, but um, they definitely want at least to be heard and paid attention to because they are the people who were left behind in the uh, globalization benefits. You know, the benefits of globalization didn't affect them so much. So they're, they felt like they're being left behind by this 
uh, the world that is changing. So then you can translate that into whatever political, um, you know, mm. pol political intent uh, you you might. But we also have one of the things Macron announced is that he wants. Um, Essentially, what you're describing, getting people picked at random to get to the, together in each, I can't remember what administrative uh, division we, we use, but either departments or regions or one of those, um, and discuss what uh, constitutional changes might be appropriate or what they want, really. Um, yeah. And then it will be brought back up to the, to the central government and maybe discussed. And maybe the uh, referendum will be one of those. It's possible. Uh, we'll see what happens. I think the first step in the new year is that we'll see how this is taking place and how it's taking form. Um, and, and it has to happen relatively quickly so that the, the, the Gilets jaunes feel like they're having an effect and, uh, and, and feel like they're being heard. Hopefully it will work out that way. I'm curious, Matthias, um, you can be the, uh, the referee on that <laughs> uh, referendum question. What do you think? Is it good or bad to have referendums? Uh, it depends. God damn it. <laughs> well, I was right asking answer, you a right? yes or no question, Matthias. You can't wiggle out of it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm personally, I'm not against referendums, but um, I don't think they're the uh, savior of democracy as many people make them out to be. Uh, one mm. of the reasons for one, um, if you look at Switzerland, uh, it isn't that great after all for most cases. And second, most questions you have to decide in politics are not as simple to be broken down into a yes or no Questions. Yeah, that's what I was saying. And yeah, yeah, that's that's the main reason why I usually don't favor them, at least not on a federal level. We have referendums here, mostly on a communal level. Like if a city decides oh, we want to build a new town hall or something on this ground, do you want this? Yes or no? And usually the participation is very low in these cases. So there's if you if you're lucky, 30 percent of the eligible voters in the city and on a small scale uh, vote for this. And I don't imagine if you have a lot of referendums on a federal level or a state level, um, those numbers would be any better than that. So it wouldn't be quite representative, I guess. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we are very active politically in France. So I think it's it could it could work a little bit better. But no, it's it's more uh, it depends on the level here in Germany. If the on the communal level on right. uh, and the low levels, the participation is not as great. But if you go up the ladder, up to the federal level, uh, a lot of people vote on federal levels. We have like seventy percent participation in, uh, around those numbers, and. Uh, the communal levels are not that interesting for most people. Right. I'm that's not sure enough, you know, it's... if that would be different if you have to vote on a question like a referendum. But mm. yeah. Well, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty great, actually. This is what the the show is about. You're you're both kind of uh, changing my my vision, shifting my view on this a little bit, and uh, I get out of the show a little bit. Uh, I think. Uh, a better person. I know a little bit more about all of this. So thank you very much. Um, I did want to mention one of the big, as a half joke, um, it's not really a joke, but we, of course, with the, the protests, we've had uh, commerce slowed down tremendously in the last month of the year, where it usually uh, has a huge portion of its uh, um, activity 
uh, in the country. And so now the the one of the questions people are wondering about is should should sales because we have official dates for uh, sales in in France um, it can only happen I think it starts on January 1st and a lot of people are saying maybe we should advance them so that um, the 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 commerce can or and the the shops can make up a little bit at least of their um, revenue for the year if we advance it to you know 28th or 29th or whatever um, and get people in stores spending money uh, before they other uh, otherwise would but everyone uh, expects the sales to be awesome because the stores need to uh, get rid of their stock which they couldn't get rid of enough in December so sales are going to be a consumerist heaven this year even more than usual tick tock on that one it's the 27th i know <laughs> I, i i don't know what's going to happen we'll see um i guess the government well, could decide tomorrow or I was going to talk about something different, actually, but uh, since we don't have time, I guess uh, one quick thing that might be also be amusing. Um, do you remember that the G20 summit was in early December in Buenos Aires? Yes. And uh, there was a story that Angela Merkel's uh, airplane, the, the plane of, of the German government, had to turn back because of a malfunction. Did that make the news? Yeah, in, I in think I heard France? something about that, yeah. Yeah. And just now uh, there has been a report uh, what actually happened. So uh, just to recap for those who don't know, en route to the G20 summit in December, um, the Airbus A3040, I don't know which model it is. They had to turn back because uh, there was a malfunction of the communication system and they couldn't reach uh, ground control anymore. All the communication systems blacked out and they couldn't restart it. And in the end, they had to use a satellite phone from the baggage to call the ground and turn around and make an emergency landing, which was... So they of... went into the... have to. Oh, they had a satellite... Uh, 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 um... Satellite yeah, one or... of the passengers had a satellite phone okay. on them, like for government use. And they called the tower and asked, uh, well, uh, we have to turn back. We're over uh, in Dutch airspace and we have to turn back. Call Köln ground control. We're coming back. So basically, and it was a bit, a little bit hairy because the hydraulics for uh, the valve that releases the, the fuel actually malfunctioned. So they had to land with all the fuel on board, which is uh, kind of yeah. scary. Uh, any, in any case, it turns out uh, they investigated what happened, and it turns out that uh, one of the problems was a bad soldering joint in one of the components. And there was a backup system, a digital backup system for all of this, but the pilots didn't know about the backup system because it wasn't written in the manual. So they were sitting up there in the cockpit trying to fix it, reading the manual, and they had the wrong manual, and therefore they couldn't restart it. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> it's kind of scary but <laughs> why did they have the wrong manual apparently that was an oversight by the manufacturer this system had been installed for i don't know how many years but it didn't put it in the manual for some reason the, and no one had new manuals people <laughs> they, they, they read the manuals i mean no those, i know those, i know but the manufacturer those were the best qualified pilots you can have in in, in the air force i guess but still they don't know everything uh, Off, off, out of the top of their head and usually you have those checklists and they went through all the checklists and it didn't work so uh, it turns out um, manuals are important after all yeah that i agree with especially when you're on an airplane um 
And and apparently they're replacing manuals with iPads and stuff like that. What do you do when your iPad is out of battery? No Wi-Fi signal. What? What do you do if you don't have Wi-Fi signal? Exactly. No, but it's PDFs on the iPads, I guess. Well, and um, I think actually the iPads are better because those manuals that the pilots carry are extremely heavy and they destroy so many trees being constantly printed out and updated. Exactly. I think probably so. better to yeah, have an electronic. Yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, all right, we uh, we are going to uh, end the show pretty soon, but uh, Bart, you did want to mention uh, the situation, which I referred to very quickly earlier in the show, in your other home country of uh, Belgium, which... Yeah, I'll replace my Irish hat with my Belgian hat. I have less of a Belgian accent, but I am Belgian. My passport <laughs> says so. Um, no, it, it's just, it's, it's almost funny in a tragic way, but we are yet again without a government, um, at least without a national federal government. Um, and I think the re- like after the last elections, Belgium went for over a year without a government. And we're due to do it again next May. And I think everyone sort of hoped the government we had would limp along until May and then we'd have another well, vote. And we'd when be you say until May, it, it, there's another election in May. So the, Yeah, in May we're due. So yeah. we're due European elections and federal elections. And so we were always going to have a new government negotiation starting next summer. And if passed this prologue, everyone expected that to drag on for months and months and months and months. Unfortunately, in the meantime, the government we had has collapsed in a heap over the UN uh, Accord on Immigration. Uh, the, as I call them, the potty-trained Flemish nationals decided to <laughs> turn this into a massive, massive, massive issue and basically collapse the government over it. And what's tragic to me is that the response has not been, oh, well, we must have an election immediately. The, the response has been, there's no point in having an election immediately because it would be so hard to form a government, no matter who wins the election, that we may as well just wait till the summer because we're going to have to be running our European election then anyway. And so between now and May, the government is in what we call in Flemish Lopen the Zaken, which basically means the ministers are in place, but they're only they're not allowed to make decisions. They're only allowed to make the country keep ticking over. And every major decision is now the responsibility of parliament. So basically, parliament are now supervising the ministers. They're directly responsible. The ministers are now directly responsible to parliament instead of the prime minister. And what's also intriguing is that in Belgium, the monarchy has a staggering amount of power that most people don't realize. The Belgian monarch effectively appoints a prime minister who is then rubber stamped by parliament, not the other way around, like in the UK, where the parliament mm. chooses a prime minister who is rubber stamped by the queen. No, the Belgian king appoints someone to form a government. And the Belgian king has basically is the person who has decided there will be no election until May, not the parliament, the king. And that's... People aren't used to that in a modern um, in modern yeah. democracies. I can't I can't re- I don't know monarchies too well, but I can't really think of many monarchies where uh in the western world at least where the monarch has this amount of power. So what's the yeah. mood towards him like are people saying yeah, you should, you know, we're my not going to anyway. I, I've been I've been reading up a bit and my my feeling is that the majority of the country are in the same pragmatic mindset that he's in, which is mm. basically there is no point. I mean, everyone's like, yeah, on a principle, I think on in principle, we should have elections straight away. But no one, most people don't actually seem to want them, apart from the party trade nationalists who are convinced they've just scored themselves a massive electoral gain here. So I think actually most of the country are like, oh, no, 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 let's not do this twice. Let's just do it once. This is going to be horrible enough as it is. Let's just get it 
one time and we'll call it a day. Do people think they're gonna there's gonna be a, a, a government in five months? Because if if it can't be done now, what's gonna change in five months? Well, nothing, but it's going to be really hard to form a government because in, in Belgium you have legally mandated coalition. It, for a government to be legal, it has to have parties in it from both Flanders and Wallonia, so it's always going to be a coalition. Right. Uh, but there's so many political parties that it can never be just a straightforward two-party coalition. You're talking about three, four, five parties. And no one really wants to deal with the Flemish nationalists, be they the potty train variety or the other variety. They kind of like to avoid the Flemish nationalists. But the problem is the NVA got an awful, awful lot of votes in the last election. So they were they had no choice but to deal with them. So they are in the government, which is why they were able to collapse it. And everyone expects that to happen again. And that, it's very, very difficult. The olden days when either this, the Flemish socialists and the Wallonian socialists would get together or the Flemish liberals and the Wallonian liberals would get together, or the, the Flemish version of the CDU and the Wallonian version of the CDU would get together. No, no, now the Flemish nationalists have to be consulted, and that's very, very difficult, because they are mm. trying to rule a country they don't want to exist. Right. Yeah, again, we had a, um, a, a Belgian special a few months back, so you can go check that out if you want to hear all about the very special situation in that country. Okay. Um You mentioned actually, one more thing, right? Just in terms yeah. of special, you mentioned monarchies. It's actually a point of pride for me that the Belgian monarchy is unique on planet Earth. It is the only remaining popular monarchy. So they were normal in the Middle Ages, but they're completely gone now. So the Belgian king is not king of Belgium. He is king of the Belgians. And he doesn't rule by divine right. He rules by consent of the people. So What's if he becomes... By consent of the people. So if he is unpopular, he loses his legitimacy, which is why... What happens World then? War Do you II, choose a new king? Yeah, it happened after World War II. The monarch was forced to abdicate because there was a, there was a national strike. Wow. What's How do you choose a king? The only true Belgian is the king? No, no. So, uh, the, the, so, the Belgian, so the king of Belgium is king of the Belgians, and he's not king of a place. He's king of a people. And his official... So officially, Queen Elizabeth is queen by divine right. Right. So on paper, she rules because God said so. Whereas on paper, according to the Belgian constitution, the king rules by consent of the people. So if, if he loses faith of the people, he loses his legal authority. How do you choose a new king, though? A parliament. But can anyone decide, oh, I want to be king? Or does, does it have to be a member of the royal family? Or what happens I don't there? think it has to be. It's just... Every time there's been an abdication, and in fact, it happened mm. twice. In, 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 so we had the abdication after World War II. And then when Boudouin died, who was an extremely popular king, his son was considered too young and immature. And the crown didn't go down to the son. The crown went sideways to Boudouin's brother, Albert. Hmm. Interesting. I, I, I'd love to have a, a quick summary slash discussion about the reason why this uh, uh, governmental crisis is happening in Germany now, that uh, uh, UN accord on, on immigration. Uh, but I, I'm not sure we have a lot of time. Talk, talk about a bit of a rat's nest here. Yeah, immigration, we just solved that in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, I, I swore myself I wouldn't, wasn't going to talk about the whole thing on this show. I had so many other topics we could talk about, and you just started the same thing again. <laughs> well, it's been, it's been in discussion uh, in France as well. Essentially, the Gilets jaunes, some of the Gilets jaunes, of course, it's impossible to say 
the Gilets Jaunes because it's it's a completely anamorphous movement. But some of them were claiming that uh, essentially Macron had sold France's sovereignty sovereignty um, to foreign interests with that uh, accord in in Marrakesh. And we we have uh, I mentioned it in the editorial. We have a lot of fake news um, as well in the country, but we have those few bodies of journalists who are doing tre a tremendous job at fact checking those um, uh, fake news that that spread like wildfire. And if you look at them, I think a lot of not everyone, of course, but a lot of people are are checking them to at least make sure of what the facts are. And there are a couple of uh, um, entities that offic officiate in uh, newspapers, uh, social network, and who say, you know, they would do a tweet with, you know, is this statement true? And they will then go into where they find the sources, what was actually said, what was actually... And it's it's a life-saving uh a, a, a resource because you get the facts of the issue and they don't always, you know, sometimes you you might think, oh, but all of these fake news things are bullcrap. But not really. Some of times they have, uh, or very often they have factual basis, which bases which are either exaggerated or uh, misrepresented and sometimes you think well the misrepresentation is is obviously ridiculous but you are proven wrong not that you know the, the exaggeration might be true but the core of it is still something that you might disagree with even though you're in disagreement with the people who are claiming uh those exaggerated things so it's it's a way of making sense of all of that. I guess we get back to the social media uh, sickness uh, that we you reference, Matthias. But I'm finding it, at least personally, incredibly important as a resource, and I think this uh, is needed everywhere. It might be part of the uh, solution that we're looking for desperately to combat these. Uh, uh, campaigns of disinformation, and and of course, again, it's not going to save everyone from disinformation, but it helps enough that you get back that critical mass. Maybe if the the scandal is big enough, you get the facts uh, by those people that you trust, and you get a critical mass of people who understand what the issue actually is and can make their mind on. Uh, factual information rather than uh, memes circulating on Facebook. So, See, uh, if we want to talk about fake news, uh, that would be something we could have talked about because we have a journalism, journalism scandal in Germany right now. So, uh, Oh, that, that, that journalist be... who, who made up a bunch of his yeah, uh, reports exactly. and who was super celebrated. Yeah, yes. I heard about that. That is why people don't tr trust journalists. That's the reason. Well, that's not the only reason, but we could talk about that. Just takes one bad apple and then you can justifiably be skeptical of the whole lot. Oh, that one guy did something terrible. Therefore, all journalism is terrible. You but know, that's exactly what they claim now. I, I think that is a minor issue. I do think and we could talk about this uh, in a future episode. We could talk about journalism and how it's shaped today. But I think actually that's a, 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 a fake flag, a false flag. 
I think the actual issue, the reason why people don't trust journalists, is that in a lot of cases, a lot of cases, journalists have a, not an agenda, but an angle. And they will go for that angle no matter what the facts they unearth are. Not in every case, but in enough cases. And it's not usually, you know, great um, investigative journalism. It's more of the general reporting on on everything, you know, politics, uh, uh, common incidents, societal stuff. And I will agree, there is a lot of that in at least the American left-wing media. I've I've kind of awakened to that fact. I talked about it again in that editorial. Go check it out if you're a patron. Um, it's, it is annoying me now when I see these things. The way things are being reported is slanted. Um, and it's two different kinds of issues. I think issues from the right-wing propaganda media is easy to see it's it's blatant it's obnoxious you know if you watch fox news you see stuff that are ridiculously crafted but if you you watch the and read the the quote unquote leftist coastal media there is still things that make me a little bit uncomfortable you know that i, I look at it and i think I, I actually what I talked about was uh, um, John Oliver and you know these kinds of uh, uh, talk shows. From I used to watch them a lot, but they're not reliable news sources. They are manufacturing out outrage on sometimes legitimate stuff, but the way it's approached is not proper journalism and you have a lot of people especially on the left who look at this in the way that people on the right watch uh, uh, fox news and think oh this is outrageous how can people do this but when you look at the issue a little bit more closely you realize it's not that simple they make it incredibly simple and you have a little bit of that slant uh one-sided slant on you know the new york times the washington post whatever um so my point there was to say it's not one bad apple and all of a sudden everyone else who is pristine is regarded with suspicion. That's not the real issue. You have a, these kinds of problems in every part of life. I think the real problem with the distrust with journalism is that uh, uh, slanted reporting that we see way too often. And it's more insidious. Um, but I don't think there's no such thing as the media anymore than such thing as the gilets jaunes. And I think no one, every, you know, people say, oh, we don't trust the media. No, no. What they actually mean is I don't trust a journalist I don't like because those same people will read blogs, which they will then call not the media, even though they are the media, they'll believe them. I, I, I think it's always mm. been like this. It always will be like this. If you look back at what was being published in the very early days of the United States, in the very early days of the French Revolution, in the very early days of the Enlightenment, it's always been the same. I, I you know, and yeah, you know, I, I see what you mean, but I think there is still, you know, there is a difference between a random blog and the Wall Street Journal and a random blog and the New York Times. And okay, but there's a difference between the opinion pages and the fact pages. But and that's my point. I think in the fact pages, reports are, are being made in a way that is not 
uh, uh, worthy of the highest standards of journalism that we would want uh, and that we are in, in, you know, right to demand. And that is a serious issue that is not just, oh, you know, people don't like this, so they don't like it. Um, <coughs> I think a measure, again, it's all about measures, but a measure of the criticism being leveled at enterprises like Fox News could be leveled in a certain way and I don't want I, I'm you know I'm sure some people put that completely out of proportion but could be measured in a way towards the leftist uh, coastal elite media um, be careful of false uh, false comparison because it isn't a choice of perfect honesty or complete dishonesty it's gradations in between and I don't actually think they're mirror images of each other because I'm not saying mirror. I'm not saying mirror images. And I've I've raved against the issue of you know you see eighty percent bad on one side, twenty percent bad on the other, right. and you say it's all the same. This yes, is not good. what I'm saying. What yes, I'm that's saying fine, is, then I'm happy. Yeah, what I'm saying is the issue of uh, uh, slanted slantedness in the leftist in the the left respectable media is worse than we think it is on the left. But, I mean, that, I'm not saying it says... I'm specifically not saying it's the same. You know, that's what I started my sentence with. It's, yes. There's a measure of the issue, a small measure of the issue that we accuse uh, Fox News of in other media. And I think it's less deliberate. I think it's less systemic. I think some... Um, uh, uh, media are created with the intent of defending a political agenda. I don't think it's, that's the case for uh, the New York Times, for example. But I do think that the people who work there as journalists are have been maybe fallen into a habit of having an idea of what they want to say before they write their article, and they conveniently forget parts of the reporting that would color it a little bit. And it becomes a damning... A, a report when it could be a balanced or not a balanced but a concerning report you know it goes from concerning to damning and it doesn't need to be damning report if you if you if you talk about everything you've seen it's anyway this could be a whole episode it probably I was say, this is fascinating it could <laughs> I was be going really to say, really deep yeah i want to disagree with you so much but i think that's another episode <laughs> yeah i think you know and i think it changes depending on on uh countries uh in france i'm talking about the us because i read those uh, newspapers from time to time a little bit and i don't i don't have a complete view and to be fair i don't have a complete view of fox news either uh, but that's my impression maybe i should preface all of this by saying that's my impression in france i think we have much better uh uh not objective necessarily but rigorous journalists and and i'm very proud of the uh french press in a way that i don't think i would be as much uh, in certain instances, I have a 15 million caveats and, and asterisks on my sentence, but in the US. But anyway. I, I also, think we can all agree on that we don't want Fox News in France, Germany, or Ireland. Period. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah I I'll, I'll take that, please. Um, yes. Agree. 
All right, I think that is going to be it. Uh, again, we went like with two bonus uh, topics that uh, would have necessitated much longer discussions. Uh, but that is going to have to do for this uh, Christmas episode um, of the show. Before we leave, of course, please, Bart, can you tell us where we can find more of your ramblings online? You can find everything I get up to at uh, bartb.ie. You'll find links there to the Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography podcast and to my blog and various other bits and pieces I get up to. I will also include the link to your Twitter account in the show notes. As yeah. I, as no one I can will... spell Bouchots, so it's, yeah, exactly. it's at the Bouchots, <laughs> but it's linked on bartb.ie. Um, and I will also include the link to Matthias's, uh Twitter account. Uh, where else can people find you? You can still find me on Twitter and, of course, on Mastodon. If you use Mastodon, you can find me on the, at Matsukult on the instance chaos.social, or you can look at my Twitter feed. I have pinned a post with a link there. Perfect. For me, it's not Patrick on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can find the show at frenchspin.com along with a show about gaming, the um, Pixels show, which I uh, produce every couple of weeks. Uh, and we recently did our best of 2018 episode. So if you enjoyed games even a little bit, I think that is an episode you won't want to miss. It's uh, a lot of games that we talk about with a lot of people. It's super fun. The show is called Pixels. You can even subscribe on your podcast app right now. And lastly, if you enjoy this show, if you think it uh, brings something to your life, if you uh, get something out of it, if you are entertained or informed, please do consider going to patreon.com slash the Club and supporting it with your dollars, with your monies. Um, the link is in the show notes as well. You can just click from there and it takes about two minutes to uh, subscribe. So thank you very much to the many people who already support the show. Uh, you are the light of my Christmas or my uh, Kwanzaa or my uh, Hanukkah or whatever it is that you celebrate. See, I'm going to be pandering a little bit towards the end. And we will talk to you again in 2019. Talk to you then. Bye.